this week we lost, um, this week we gained an ancestor, phenomenal tap dancer, choreographer, and leader in the form, Dexter Jones. I had the great good fortune of being able to work with Dexter Jones magically when I was 16 years old, a wee little child, <laughs> uh, on the set of Bojangles. I remember I was um, struggling to keep up with Henry Letang's choreography, and there was Dexter Jones, a leader, guiding the way all day, every day. <laughs> I remember my teacher, uh, when I first started tap dancing, she gave me the VHS tape of um, uh, a PBS recording of Black and Blue, of which Dexter Jones was a part of that production. And, you know, <laughs> I watched that tape again and again and again. I was obsessed with that show, obsessed with that tape. And to meet Dexter Jones in person, to be able to work with Henry, Henry Letang in person, it was it was an, an incredible experience. Not to mention, of course, Savion Glover and Gregory Hines, Channing Cook Holmes. Uh, it, was, it was a great experience. Um, and the realm of ancestors, tapathetically speaking, <laughs> is so much richer now. Um, I, I want you to listen to this clip. I... I, I interviewed him not too long ago. I interviewed Dexter not too long ago and we were talking about um, uh, Dr. Henry Letang and I wanted to know as much as he could offer uh, about his experience working with um, Dr. Henry Letang. And, um, I chose to share this clip because I think what he shared, what Dexter shared about Henry's perspective, Henry's like hypothetical perspective of of what he'd think about tap dancers today if he were still alive. I think it's hyper relevant. I think this clip is hyper relevant to um, Dexter's approach to the dance and Dexter's integrity with the dance and Dexter's Dexter's knowledge of the dance and the diaspora. Quite frankly, uh, listen to this. Henry, Henry's, I would see Henry's big problem now as I get bored. He would, I would think he would say, I probably get bored watching a lot of these dancers now. Hmm. That's what I would think. Because a lot of them don't understand they're on stage in a space and that space is large and you've been in the same three feet for the last 10 minutes mm. Mm. and nothing is happening otherwise. Why do I need to put you on a, you know, 40 foot stage right. when you can do this in your bathroom? Mm. You understand? Yep. So it's not that they're bad, it's that there's a whole another uh, layer that's not being addressed, which is where his choreography crossed with the rhythm tap. His choreography filled the stage and moved and did stuff, and yet at the same time, you were doing those same damn steps mm -hmm. that were difficult and mad, maddening to try to get. 
to hold that rhythm and do what it was because there was no, uh, what's the word? Uh, you, you didn't, there's words. And I hate that now I'm getting old because it's such an obvious word. What? But you didn't, sa- sac- you didn't sacrifice. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You didn't sacrifice mm-hmm. the rhythm for the, for the look and you didn't sacrifice the look for the rhythm. That was Dexter Jones. We love you, brother. May you rest in peace. Now to continue with the show, let's listen to the voice of another ancestor. We need to use the stage to say things about the condition of being African-American in this country. Uh, Not just the, the dramatic straight play stage, but the musical stage. To be able to use tap dancing in the show to say something more than what tap dancing usually says has been very satisfying to me. That is the late, great Gregory Hines from the documentary Jammin' on Broadway about the making of the show Jelly's Last Jam. And this is the Tap Love Tour podcast. Tap. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Travis Knights. I remember I was like 13 years old in 1996 when the Broadway show Bringing the Noise, Bringing the Funk exploded into the cultural zeitgeist. Not so side note, the cultural landscape in the 1990s was primed with a few game-changing, hyper-successful, international touring, corporeal rhythm shows. I mean, I'm talking about river dance and Tap dogs and stomp specifically. Now, if I'm forgetting, if I'm forgetting shows, please, please hit me up. You know, I like to learn. But you get what I'm saying. You know, the '90s were lit when it came to rhythm shows. A lot of work, a lot of interest, a lot of opportunities. Also, notice that none of the shows I just cited were American. But don't go to sleep just yet. Tap dance was very much in full swing, pun intended, in in the United States in the 1990s as well. You know, between the Broadway shows, the growing tap dance festival scene, pioneering tap dance companies, the scene was on fire. The masters, you know, Jimmy Slide, Buster Brown, uh, Charlie Atkins, Harold and Fayard Nicholas, Peg Leg Bates, Harold Cromer, Jenny Lagan, Bunny Briggs, and many others were seeding, you know, uh, the next generation of dancers. Then in 1996, Bringing the Noise, Bringing the Funk opened on Broadway and fundamentally changed the conversation. Now, I didn't get to see Noise Funk while it was on Broadway, but my parents did buy me the audio CD of the original cast production. I remember in the mornings before school, I'd eat breakfast, obsessively twist my hair, and listen to one of two CDs, a burned copy of Baby Lawrence's album Dance Master and Noise Funk on Broadway. To this day, when I hear tracks from either of these CDs, I I start to salivate and I taste... uh, Cream of wheat in my mouth. <laughs> Listen to this. Mm. 
Hollywood, they didn't want us or something. They wanted to be like entertained, see? Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me set this up properly. That's the voice and feet of Savion Glover in Noise Funk. Noise Funk fundamentally changed the conversation in a few different ways. The racial divide was thick in the 1990s. Now, the United States is an accessible case study for this, but trust that the racial divide all over the world was thick, is thick. In the 1990s, though, you had the L.A. riots following the brutal beating of Rodney King by the police. You had the fallout of the CIA raising money to fund their guerrilla army in Nicaragua by selling cocaine to the black community, which the dealers then processed and turned into crack. The final nail in the coffin uh, of this epidemic that destroyed families and entire communities was that the government penalty for possession of crack was significantly higher than it was for cocaine. As a result, the incarceration rate for black men skyrocketed. The legacy and the continued targeted attacks against the black community reached a boiling point. The nationwide complicity in this anti-black era is stunning, maddening, and heartbreaking. To this day, for example, black and native women in the United States have two to three times higher pregnancy-related deaths when compared to their white counterparts. Now, Noise Funk exploded onto the scene and told the story of the history of black people in America through tap dance. It was genius. It was necessary. It gave voice to an excruciating pain that the vast majority of the population reflexively, compulsively, pathologically tried to ignore. Hollywood, they didn't want us or something. They wanted to be like entertained, see? That's what's different. Chuck and Slide was more like education, you know what I'm saying? They was educating people, not entertaining. Hollywood, a massive, lucrative, and therefore well-funded structure of storytelling capable of mass propaganda. Let's continue. That's what's different. Chuck and Slide was more like education, you know what I'm saying? They was educating people, not entertaining. Hoofing and rhythm tap is like music. You know what I'm saying? If you can do an eight-bar phrase with your feet and another person, not a dancer, can understand like what you just did, you hit. You know what I'm saying? You expressed yourself. You made a statement. See, hoofing is dancing from your waist down. You know what I'm saying? People think tap dancing is all like arms and legs and all this big old smile. Nah, it's raw and it's real and it's rhythm. It's us and it's ours. It's us. It's ours. Who is Savion talking about? More importantly, who is he talking to? Why was this message so potent in the 90s? Why is it still so potent today? This piece, you know, this piece changed me as a dancer, as a person. It opened my eyes, my ears, my heart and soul, quite frankly, to the cosmic possibilities in the dance that is not remotely possible when entertainment is the goal of one's rhythm journey. 
This show blew up the market for tap dance. It provided a clear distinction between the noise funk way of doing things and everything else. The racial divide in the tap community grew more toxic. Relationships within tap dance you know, took huge hits, some of which are still fractured today. It's something that I understand and that I'm still trying to figure out for myself. You know, when the anger is unleashed, as it was so brilliantly and necessarily in noise funk, it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle. And putting that anger back in the bottle is not even an option, given the real-world consequences of living in a persistently racist system. Toronto. <clears throat> Toronto was just blessed with a visit from the incredible Lisa Latouche and the incomparable Sarah Reich. I was working on a top-secret project. I'm very excited. I was working on a top-secret project with Lisa, and Sarah was working at a dance convention, reaching a whole lot of young people. It's always special when Tap Fam comes to visit. The day after Lisa left town, Sarah, Johnny Morin, Corey Janata, David Cox, and myself, all tap dancers, went to visit the grave of Gregory Hines. Even though he's buried in the greater Toronto area where I live, this was my first time visiting the site. And I was surprised at how emotional I was. It's almost 20 years since he transitioned to being an ancestor. And I was crying as if it just happened. There's just something so, uh, you know, there's just something so... Uh, final about a gravestone, a gravesite. For those who have never been, Gregory's in a beautiful space. The, the day we visited him, the sun was shining bright, lending us warmth in contrast to the freshly fallen snow. On his gravestone is written, so all sing their festive dance. Within you is my true home. It's taken from Psalms 87, verse 7. These words are so powerful to me because they serve to unify. So all sing their festive dance. Within you is my true home. I dig it. I believe it. The dance has shown me such wonders in my life that I, I wake up every day in amazement. Even whether or not to call it tap dance is a conversation that I think misses the point. So all sing their festive dance within you is my true home. Gregory told the truth of the dance he practiced and dedicated his life to, in my opinion, better than anyone in the classic film tap. The movie displayed the past present and future of the form in no uncertain terms it is a masterpiece it galvanized the form and unified the community in a way that makes me inspired like i wish i could have been around in the mid to late 80s to experience it that era that epoch in 2001 amid the toxic scene in tap dance the Tap City Festival in New York honored Gregory Hines with the inaugural Hoofer Award. And this is his acceptance speech. Listen to this. 
you know, it, it, it can never be a corny expression to talk about the love that exists between all of us. We love tap dance and do it because that's why we do it. We do it because we love it. You know, people don't people don't uh, say it in early age and say, well, you know, I want to I want to have a beautiful house, I want to have a great car, I want to have a lot of money in the bank. I'll be a tap dancer. <laughs> <laughs> no, we do it because we love it. We must do it, and uh, and the joy is in the doing. And so, you know, I'm going to accept this award. Tony told me, he said, you know, we'd like you to accept the first. I wasn't sure whether he said that the Hoover's Award or the old Hoover's Award. <laughs> I said, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> man. And so I'm going to accept this award on behalf of my mother who passed away a couple of years ago and who, there's no question, not be here tonight had it not been for my mother. And this is the kind of word that my mother, if she were alive, would just come into my house and take it. it. <laughs> shown me the world. I've met some of my favorite people in life through the dance. Tap is my instant access to spirituality when, you know, when I'm balanced, of course. <laughs> Tap connects me to the public in a way that is miraculous for me. If you knew me as a shy child, you'd understand the miracle of me being a performing artist as an adult. Tap is a gift, a wonder that has the potential to change lives. I do not take Gregory's words lightly. So all sing their festive dance. Within you is my true home. Having said that, I'm also very angry. And beneath that anger is a profound sadness. In this season, I'm actively trying to lean in on joy. But when it comes to my work, what I choose to put on stage, the central question that I ask is, how do it free us? There's a, there, there, there's a responsibility, I feel, as a performing artist with access to audiences. Our guest today is a key collaborator of mine, playwright Donna Michelle St. Bernard. 
I've never encountered a powerhouse quite like her. We're currently working on a play about the legacy of Bill Bojangles Robinson. She is impeccable at what she does. The collaboration is opening up my view of what is possible when storytelling meets dance. I remember, you know, we were coming up on the one year anniversary since the lynching of George Floyd. I was still a wreck. The folks at Soul Pepper Theater Company in Toronto asked me if I wanted to do something online that marked Tap Dance Day and George Floyd. I couldn't even handle the question as I sobbed in the meeting. But Donna Michelle took care of me. She ended the meeting so that I could gather myself, then came back a few days later with the answer. On May 25th, 2021, we put out a digital uh, we put out a digital short called How to Feel. We heard the tapathetical voices of Leonardo Sandoval, Josette Wiegand, Jabu Graybill, uh, Lisa Latouche, myself, and Star Dixon, dancing to an emotional prompt written by Donna Michelle. And it was exactly what I needed at the time. She's one of the most respectful and considered artists I've ever worked with. I recently saw her new play, The First Stone, in Toronto. It's about African child soldiers. Oh, you heard me correctly. You heard, oh, oh, you heard me correctly. African child soldiers. It was transformational for me. You know, this is not something, <laughs> this is not a, a, a topic that I would readily pursue at all, readily consume at all. But because I knew the artist behind it. I got to experience something and consider something that I otherwise would have been willfully blind to. You know, she treated the subject with respect and a well-considered, caring approach for the cast and the audience. It is beyond a privilege to get to work with her. In all honesty, without her and her perspective, I don't know if I could tackle the subjects that I'm tackling in my work and survive emotionally beyond a year or two. Whether it be, here's the key. Here's the key. Uh, if you don't get anything else from this podcast, um, whether it be musicians, singers, visual artists, poets, or playwrights, artistic collaboration is transformative, no matter what the artistic form. Trust me. Donna Michelle Saint-Bernard is a Canadian playwright, theater director, and MC. She is a three-time nominee for the Governor General's Award for English Language Drama. She's a Dora Award winner, Enbridge Playwrights Award winner, an artistic baller. Without further ado, please extend your cleanest left foot shuffles and welcome to the Taplovtor podcast, the artistic director of New Harlem Productions, Donna Michelle Saint Bernard. I want to start off uh, here. Like I was nervous to talk to you uh, yesterday. <laughs> I was like, oh, I got, I got nervous <clears throat> uh in a good way though um your 
it's as I get older, I really come to appreciate when uh, I meet someone and, and see their work and I'm just like, oh, sh- it just um, bowls me <laughs> over and um, makes me want to join the party, you know, makes me want to be an artist, makes me want to create. It's, it's an inspiring thing. Um, I saw that Our Fathers is going to be uh, playing in Montreal in February, uh, a play that's still with me uh, today. Um, I had the good pleasure of seeing good pleasure. That's a, yeah, <laughs> I had the privilege. There you go. Um, to see, um, the first stone even more recently than that, a phenomenal play about, uh, child soldiers and, um, you know, just seeing those two iterations of your work, one in a directing capacity, the other <laughs> in a, in a writing capacity, we're working together. I'm sure we'll get to that eventually. But uh, um, I'm curious about how you do it, because these two works are they're they're they're, they're not bubblegum. They're not cotton candy. Uh, they're um, they're difficult subjects, but not just that. They're important subjects. Uh, in in both cases, the the I'm trying not to go into detail about the works. I'll, I'll leave that up to you, in terms of how much you want to share. But um, um, in in both cases, I thought they were hyper respectful to the subject matter, to the people involved, and to the audience. I thought it was, um, uh, I felt protected by you while being ushered through very, very difficult subject matter. I would go so far as to say, after seeing has made me uh, a more connected human being. So... Son of a shell, say but on. How how the hell how 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 do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um okay, well thank you for all of that. Um Captain Charisma. <laughs> um I mean what what is it? What is what is it? What is the it? I appreciate I appreciate you um naming what I was, what I had hoped to do and what my collaborators hoped to do, which is be respectful of the folks whose story it is and the folks who the story is being offered to and all of that. Hmm. Um, that made me feel really good that you said that. Yeah, I do like candy and bubble gum, but it's not my, it's not my work. <laughs> so like, I guess when, when I, when I asked the question, like how, it's uh child soldiers is a, is a is a uh, a topic that i actively run away from mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and you i feel like slowly and deliberately walk toward it mm-hmm. how oh oh intentional i think that's my big answer to your big question yeah. <laughs> with intention um i am i am aware of some things in the world as are we all that are like um hard to live with Mm. you know and then but then like you have to live so what does it mean i used to um when i started working on the first stone in particular um that's the story that has gripped me the most in my in my life Mm. um 
and and when people would tell me like things that they experienced I was like why is this being told to me like why do I have to know this um and there's a a woman who I met at uh I did a gig with my band for the uh, Ontario Coalition on International Cooperation speaking of candy a coalition of international cooperation. Hey now. Like, what is that? Um, and it was really exciting. There was lots of international guests there who do different kinds of really important front lines work. And there was a woman there um, from Gulu in Uganda. And and long conversation. At some point she said to me, um, you're not being shown things so that you can do nothing about them. Why are you being shown these things and I was like excuse me while I go answer that with my life wow. <laughs> and so you know the same thing like when we're doing um research or gathering stories or just experiencing the world and then people like reiterate the worst thing that ever happened to them to you like you can't waste that energy you can't waste the um whatever that investment is because they want that to be known um, but then like, how do you, how do you do that? Mm. You know, how do you do that respectfully? And you just ask that every day. Like, is this respectful? Is this gory? Is this sensational? Is what is, what is this designed to do? Is this designed to make you feel sorry about it and then be grateful your life is different? Like, what is this designed to do? Mm. And then I think everyone on the team constantly asking that question and is it doing that thing and who is this for you know that's a gift that is a gift do you do you have um an idea of what happens when you choose not to when you choose not to answer that question when you choose to um ignore the stories that are being told to you yeah it's maddening it's maddening and it's awful for people who are close to me because I can't stop saying the thing because mm. I feel something and then it comes out like at Thanksgiving dinner. Mm. You know, people are like, I'm thankful for my family. And that's like good and wholesome. And then I'm like, yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Um, uh, I'm thankful for the the little boy whose parents fed him dog food and kept him in a cupboard. I'm thankful that his teacher told and everyone's like, we're not hungry. Mm. You've ruined everything. Mm. But guys, aren't you thankful that his teacher told? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No one disagrees with you. You've just ruined everything. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, you're always welcome at my table. That's for damn sure. So um, I, I, I agree with you. I, I'm confused though. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder how, how, how do you survive? How do you take care of yourself as you spend months at a time, you know, a, a, a great deal of your life diving into uh, difficult topics? How do you, how, how do you survive that? Uh, well, every day I'm excited to discover that I am surviving. <laughs> um, life is joyful. Mm. I'm alive and blessed and 
privileged in so many ways. I get to like work with you and exchange ideas with you and mm. feel full and that I'm making use of what has been given to me to address what seems not right. Um, and I think just like I have a great sense of purpose in my work and that fulfills me. I think it's really important to for me to stay focused on not doing this work to make bad dreams stop, even though that it's good when they do. Mm. And not not just doing this work to like work out some like philosophical thing for myself as a person and how I want to be in the world, even though that's true. Mm. And that is a good impact that it has on me. Like, oh, you know, how how am I not kind? <laughs> but like in uh in everything, like in conspiracy theories and and romantic relationships and whatever, like every choice that's made is like, who does this serve? And so I think I am, I think I can save my mind and heart by trying to make sure that I'm serving the right thing or the right people. And so like when we're making, um, in the making of the first stone, there's we're in certain relationships with folks who are affected by the reality of that story, whose story that actually is. And, um, you know, try to be in relationship with those folks and ask, what do you need? What is, what would help you about this? Like when I, when, when people, so many lovely and generous people offer me their stories, I ask them, and especially if they're young, what is this story about? Like, what does it say? If I told your story, what would it be about? Um, or what what should it say to people? And so that I'm not just using their story as a vehicle for what I'm trying to say. Mm. Oh. And that feels connected to purpose. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> and also, like, it feels good to try your best to do something hard. Yeah. So... Uh, can you can we can we get nerdy like uh, oh my god let's be nerdy how did you how did you how did you do it like I, in my experience the first stone is an epic work how did you know uh t tell me <laughs> um, about it like I'll how did you, you a short story about making it yeah yeah um what's the shortest story i can tell you that has information in it <laughs> okay so I became aware of this story of what at the time they called the night commuters, um, the children in uh, Gulu, in, in that village, who um, would avoid abduction by walking several hours to the city where there were streetlights they could sleep under so they, so they would feel safer or be less likely to be snatched or like a place that has police or, you know, hmm. or all like sleeping together in like a gymnasium or whatever it was they they would leave home every night and come back home in the morning and then do their work or their school or, and that was like people's lives for decades um and so um that my band was invited to play for gulu walk which is an uh canadian undertaking by athletes for africa they, they these two guys would um these two guys that's so rude um they're fantastic like really inspiring and they decided to do the walk every night and they'd like walk down to city hall and they'd sleep in sleeping bags on the ground there and then they'd walk back and it's like it's kind of a stunt but it was an effective stunt and a lot of people started joining them um and then that 
bred an international situation, kind of mind blowing. Um, yeah, so our band would play uh, for the walk during the walk, and um, then I was like, like, what is it? And then I met that woman I was telling you about who said you're not being shown this for no reason, and I was like, what? I wasn't as self-directed. I was like, so then tell me what to do. And mm. she said, you have to come to Gulu. And I was like, but I'm not useful. Like I tell stories. Do you want me to tell, come and tell them stories? I can do that on the phone. What do you need me to do? And she's like, I just need you to come. And so I was like, I don't like, I feel like cause you met me here, you might think I'm qualified for something. So I'm going to let you know straight up. Here's here's what I can do for you. I can dig a hole all day long and I can hold a baby while you dig a hole. Those are the only ways in which I'm useful. Do you want me to come? She's like, you have to come because those children think that only white people care about them. <sighs> you have to show up. And I was like, boom. All right. Anyway, so that's like... It's a heavy charge. Hmm. Maybe that's why it stuck so hard. Anyway, so yeah. And so I, I did go there and met people. And um, after some time, they um, would share their stories with me. They would take me to places where things had happened. Hmm. And in that place, tell me what happened there. Um, met people from both sides of the conflict. And um, visited there several times. Uh, brought a brought a play there. Uh, we were workshopping a play called Cake, and we did it in partnership with a, a Ugandan company called Dynamo Theater, um, with Canadian and Ugandan actors, and did some work there. And um, anyways, got to go back again for Kendu Hearth, was, which was Mumbi Tendiabwa Otu's um, conference in Kampala, Uganda. Sorry, those are details. Um, I just did my best to understand from as many people as I could, what happened from their perspective. And then on, and then over here to read how it was being reported and what was missing and what the gap was there. And then to do the thing that they asked me to do, which that everyone asked me to do when I asked what the story was about, everyone said, it's about how we are rebuilding. And so I was like, well, then that's what this story needs to be about. And then, and then it took me forever to make this production because it was like big and un uh, hard. Um, and so like, I couldn't find a producer and I was like, that's okay, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the meantime, in between time, um, we also became aware of this uh, Gulu-based group called Yolred, Youth-Led Restoration and Development. And so these are former child abductees who had come back and been received by um, white-led NGOs who were like, welcome back, here's some school books and some soup or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, videotape them a lot and they'd be like crying on these tapes. And I'm like, why are you, why is there a camera in this child's face? Which we're all familiar with that feeling now, right? From Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. Like, why is there a camera in this crying child's face? It's the least comforting possible thing to do. It was so, so awkward to see those videos. Anyways, those kids were like, thank you for trying to help us when we came back. You do not know what we need and you didn't ask. Oh. So they started 
uh, an organization led by former child abductees to receive uh, kids who were coming back home and to understand what they did and didn't need to talk about or to do. Um, and then the story made sense because, you know, once the Lord's Resistance Army moved from that area, so did the NGOs. And the people were like, what? Like, and there were like so many NGOs in that village that most people worked for them. And then they all just left. And long story long, it's hard to write a play. It's hard to write a story about something that didn't end, that isn't like fixed, that isn't, that you're still in the middle of. And this is not an ending, but it's such a satisfactory outcome for the kids to be leading the kids home. There's like this... Um... I, like I don't, listen I'll, I'll I'll say it this way because I don't want to give away the ending but um I, I I've been struggling with forgiveness and mm. when I was sat there watching it I felt that I could never have come up with that I, I could never have um it's 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 um I'll, I'll use i'll use the um the the term um evolution it's like it's like there, there's like evolutionary stages and uh <clears throat> you know um considering the 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 arc of the play it's not something that i um I think I would have had to have lived uh, a few uh, lifetimes to to come up with that ending, but the it was. Um, it is. It remains difficult. Necessary, but difficult for me to. Um, grapple with the idea of forgiveness. Um, uh, I, I I'm sorry I'm sorry for everyone listening like I don't like I don't know uh <laughs> I don't mean to be like cryptic. I want you to see the work and I don't know when 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 y'all will have the opportunity to see it but uh, it's so suffice it to say that the topic the concept of forgiveness in my world in my body feels so difficult um but necessary in order to build move forward and build your thoughts it's the most it's one of the most stunning things about that place that and it makes me think about community that like you'll sit sit with someone telling you about you know what what they've been through and then you'll want to talk to someone who's on the other side of that experience. And they're like, yeah, they're at the next table over there. And like, so just to think about children who've been abducted and then who have enacted and, and received violence coming home, like coming home sounds so nice, mm. but like, and this is, and for me, this is definitely makes me think about 
um, incarcerated people and the concept of rehabilitation and the kind of the permanent identity of being an ex-con or a former child soldier like that's that being what mm. you are forever mm. and thinking about you know humanity like everybody's got to live somewhere and how how do you do that how do you have that neighbor how do you be that neighbor who has done something and is needing to move forward uh, in in your own story uh how did this work change you oh geez i know <laughs> um this story continues to change me like i i look at those kids and i'm like you're better than me hmm. you know you're better than me i'm i'm still angry and it wasn't wasn't me hmm. they're so nice those kids i mean they're they're grown up now but they're so they're so nice and smart and competent and i'm like but you know a small thing happened to me when i was 17 and i'm still kind of ruined i mean small things didn't happen to me I'll, I'll give myself that credit some big things happened to me for years and years and years but like you know it it feels like what how do I contend with being in community with people who I feel have done harm? Hmm. How do I be make space for people to come home? Hmm. Um, yeah, because if I was angry and then you didn't let me come home, I would get angrier. I mean, that's science. Hmm. Um, and thinking too holistically about like the body of the community and there being a wound in the body of the community. Partly, partly, I think I'm able to move through through some of this because of the metrics of homecoming. I'm using air quotes. Like, people who are released from mental institutions or from prison institutions or... Um, Folks who are who are supported, for example, folks who are supported with disability support versus those who are encouraged to feel free to end their lives. It's all of those things are connected to utility, to labor utility. We're worth supporting if we're able to continue to contribute to the economy. And that hurts my feelings. Mm. It really does. Because at some point there's an argument to be made that what what any of us does is not of value. Maybe stories aren't of value. <laughs> so cool. But like I, the human being, that just shifted me into like not being worth feeding. It's not how humanity works. Wow. You know, like we we exist and then and maybe we find our thing and maybe our thing is a great contribution and maybe it isn't and we still deserve to live. Mm. So all of that, all of that is tied up. Like what is the body of the community? Is It's not a machine that turns out product and generates revenue it's a it's something else it's something else and what am i in it like have should i too not be ostracized then if we're drawing lines am i also not out like i'm pretty awful sometimes <laughs> <laughs> so yeah my doo-doo does smell particularly bad on Wednesdays. So um, the, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, another thing that, that struck me about about uh, the first stone was um, the 
I'm sorry to use this word. I believe it though. Genius form of accessibility that that you had written like in the play and not as an afterthought, like this is a central tool we're going to use uh, or not tool, <laughs> whatever. You know what I'm trying to say. Um, Elements. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's not just a by the way thing. Um, so that like adds to the layer of of respect uh, being paid to the subject matter, to the people, to the audience, to everyone involved. I remember leaving the space with my wife, and we were unable to say anything. Like for most of the ride home, we were just effed, and I like I can only imagine what it was like for the actors. Um, mm-hmm. in the piece. Mm-hmm. Can, can you tell me about how they coped or, or, or you know, were, were the tools, tools that you had in the process itself uh, to help them uh, survive, really? <laughs> the, yeah, the main, we did think about it a lot. And mm-hmm. I mean, to be redundant, intention was the answer, both to access and care inside the team. And I wouldn't say that we're, you know, that it's possible to be 100% successful uh, in those things. Look at me forgiving myself on the spot. But um, I know that some of those access measures met a mixed response in the community that they were for. And I think part of that is around our messaging. Sorry, that's a tangent. But I just want to acknowledge that, that we did uh, intentionally put in a lot of access measures in an attempt to integrate them into the creative um, work, into the design, into the aesthetic. And that was really uh, an important and a learning um, exercise for our team because we intentionally didn't want to do what is always done. We wanted to try to push a little bit in access as well, um, in integrated access. And so um, mixed success, but in terms of inside the team, the types of plays that I write, I'm very concerned how uh, I'm I'm concerned with how they affect the audience who has to see it once. I am much more concerned with the people that do it over and over again for several weeks. For two months, they're living in this story and going home to parents and children and um, trying to go clubbing, <laughs> which they deserve to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, so so to begin with, one of my philosophies about receiving these kinds of stories is I cannot make it as hard for you to hear it from me as it was for me to hear it from them. The, the point is not to convey that trauma onto you. The point is to be the filter and to, to give it to you in a way that is possible for you to receive, hmm. um, for which I rely a lot on as you saw the movement and the music and those contributions from collaborators who speak in different vocabularies mm. um, that like cushion the heart or open open up something that that moves you past the sort of surface message, which has been really gratifying. Um, and so inside the team, we talk about care. That's the, the main thing is that it's on the table as an item that time is allocated to. Um, and then it'll happen differently in every room, right? So, I mean, we do we did check-ins and check-outs and it's not a formality that you do just to be like, we're all here, you've heard our voices. It's like, what's going on with people and how does that change the way they are gonna move through the day and we're gonna move around them through the day. We had like 
um, care homework where, you know, we went into the weekend and the homework was to do uh, meaningful self-care and then come back and tell us what it was so that each of us can build our personal toolkits of how we approach self-care. Mm. So we had a really intergenerational cast with some like new grads and some veteran performers and they're in different places with the kind of work that they do and what the needs of that work are and how much they've had to develop these tools. So we set up spaces where people could exchange how they're approaching it because I don't know, because I'm a mess all the time. I also would like to know how they get through it, how actors move through these difficult things. And I want them to know from each other and feel comfortable having that conversation. We were supported by um, a, a program called, we continue to be supported by Balancing Act, um, which supports like, uh, which for us supported care stipends um, that we were able to offer people and be like, this is like massage money. This mm. is going to see an elder money. This is listening to really good music money. This is take good care of yourself money. And it's not much, um, but like here's here's some ideas and here's some resources. I don't know what was useful of that, I don't know what specific elements people took advantage of because I think self-care is to, to some degree is private as well. Hmm. Um, but it was part of our culture. It continues to be part of our culture. Oh, yes. Continues to be. I should mention that if anyone hasn't seen it and is nearby the Ottawa region, it goes up again in April at GCTC. Cool. Um, with a local Ottawa chorus and um, then a, a contingent of our, our Toronto cast as well. So it's it's also the production of this is an act of like integrating with different communities and like or like exchanging with different communities. And that's part of it too. Like how do we become close quickly in work that that needs some degree of intimacy? Um, and how do you create a space where people can say like, like I'm extra sad today because I have children and I'm going to step out while you do this thing that you're about to do. Um or like, I'm extra sad for reasons that are in your business. Mm. <laughs> this is, this this is gonna be difficult. Yeah. So I don't know. Intention, bro. Intention. Um, I remember. Uh, <laughs> I remember uh, a couple of years ago being an absolute mess on one of these Zoom calls. Um, we were, we were both in this like, uh, I'll say air quotes creative meeting. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, like, I just like burst out into tears. I was just like out of, out of, out of sorts. And uh, there was, uh, <laughs> like, you know, as a dude born in the eighties, uh, <laughs> there's, uh, um, uh, in Quebec and then moving to Ontario, there's like, um, there's a, there's a culture shift and, um. Uh, the there's a how do I put this uh, a discomfort with uh, uh, overt emotionality um, uh, that I'm pre that I perceive in general uh, and I perceived it then but I, I was just I was too late I was already off the chain and just you know this you know <laughs> this creative quote unquote creative meeting but it's you know business you know people are there to work <clears throat> So then I remember you took control 
you said a truth that I think unless you didn't, unless you said it, I, I don't think it would have been, that truth would have been acknowledged that um, it doesn't have to be like this. Travis, take time. We're going to end this meeting and we're going to reconvene. Bam. You just like did what needed to be done. And then um, eventually when we came back to the meeting, uh, you had solved a problem that I had. Uh, it was all about what to do for uh, International Tap Dance Day, May 25th. I think, was it 2021? <laughs> was it 2021? Uh, May 25th. Yeah, but was it like, I, I think I think it was 2021. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yes, and so I'm I, sorry. I'm, 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 I'm sobbing. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sobbing because... Um, I'm I'm still you know, sad uh, or or in grief over George Floyd and the fallout and the ripping apart of yeah. uh, something that's been there for at least four hundred years, and um, um, you came back to the meeting with a creative solution that allowed me to feel how I felt. Period, and it was so healing. Um, and I had the privilege of involving a bunch of other black tap dancers um, uh, in the process. And I was so proud of that meaningful work, meaningful, intentional work. And even if no one else on the scene, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it's something that wouldn't have happened without your particular perspective on care, respect, and intentionality. It is... Um, the privilege of my career to be able to work with you for for uh, uh, something that's eventually going to come out called tentatively called the trial of uncle tom um, uh, whoop, whoop, largely about my my relationship my complicated relationship to as a black man to um bill bojangles robinson and his legacy and and the comp the complexities around the label of uncle tom as a as a sign off as a last question this question is aimed at being a time capsule. I wonder, can you share caution or advice or perspective that will serve or could serve what will eventually become the trial of Uncle Tom? Wow. You're not easy. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'll, I'm going to reiterate and expand on what I've already mentioned, which is the question, a question I think that I share with you, which is who does it serve hmm. around that work specifically that grappling with discomfort, it's the worst and being able to see what the source of that discomfort is, is helpful. Why am I uncomfortable? Like, if I become comfortable, if I solve this discomfort, if I resolve this discomfort, who does it serve? By which I think, I mean, there's something useful about going into a work that is so personal with with someone specific outside of the work to be in service to. And then I think that can guide us. 
does resolving my discomfort, uh, is it to the advantage or detriment of this external thing hmm. that we've decided to serve? Can I just, can I, can I just say something about that moment of that meeting? Yeah. Um, my action was a product of my discomfort. I was very uncomfortable because you were very uncomfortable and I wanted it to stop. I didn't want to stop seeing you be uncomfortable. Mm. I wanted you to stop being uncomfortable. Mm. And, and that was, that's where that offering came from. Mm. How can I, I cannot make you stop feeling how you're feeling. I cannot because you, the way you feel is appropriate. Mm. And so like, how can we acknowledge it in a way that is not uncomfortable that we don't feel like we're excusing ourselves for being there? Like, pardon me, I just need to say a thing. Like, sorry, it's you might not. To just come out and be like, this is what we're saying. And we're confident in saying this thing because this is what we're serving. Because we are serving the broader community discomfort that refuses to be addressed. Um or whose ways of being addressed are deemed inappropriate. Hmm. And just to be like, you know what? No, it isn't. It isn't. The way we're all addressing our discomfort isn't inappropriate. And then you can move through it and I can move through it. And the other people in the room with us who were uncomfortable witnessing discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> They can move through it too, and we're all in different places. Mm. Um, anyways, in this project, uh, I'm in service to you and your vision and your and your drive and your artistry. And so then whoever you pass it on to, whatever you're in service to, i'm I'm subcontracted in service to that. So. <laughs> well played um, well played and i have and i have trust and faith in you that what you serve is worthy so i'm not abdicating mm. my own judgment i'm rigorously applying my judgment that what the thing that you are pursuing is worthy to me dig it thanks bro uh i i don't take that lightly uh as you well effing know um <laughs> <laughs> Um, I appreciate you and uh, let's move forward. Boom. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard and want to support Tap Love Tour, then join our, our Patreon at patreon.com slash Travis Knights. Patreon is a service that allows people to support artists and creatives that make content that they enjoy or benefit from. If you're considering joining, know this. You will be contributing to the creation of new work. Tap Love Tour goes beyond this podcast. TLT is a production house that creates pieces, music, dance, vlogs, documentaries, all related to the dance. I have plans for collaborations that are now achievable over time with this Patreon model. You're all essentially Tap Love Tour micro producers. Now, if you want to help us to create, if you want to join the Tap Love Tour family, then head over to patreon.com slash Travis Knights and join at any tier that you feel makes sense for you. Before we go, listen to this.
Louis Armstrong. He was a dangerous man too, but it took me a long time to find it out. Most of the fellas I grew up with, myself included, we used to laugh at Louis Armstrong. We knew he could play the horn, but that didn't save him from our malice and our ridicule. Everywhere we looked, there'd be old Louis. Sweat popping, eyes bugging, mouth wide open, grinning, oh my lord, from ear to ear. Oofta, we call him. Mopping his brow, ducking his head, doing his thing with a white man. Oh yeah! Huh. It wasn't until 1966 when we were working together in a picture in New York with Sammy Davis Jr. Cicely Tyson that I got to know Louis better. Everybody on the set thought it was a ball. Louis and Sammy. They never stopped lying and jiving and putting each other down for the benefit of the crowd. It was happy times with two master clowns in charge, keeping the whole set in stitches. One day, we'd broken for lunch, and I decided to stay inside. It was quiet, so I thought everybody had gone. I went back on the set to lie down on the bed. And there was Louis by the door, sitting in a chair, staring up and out into space with the saddest, most heartbreaking expression I've ever seen on a man's face. I just stared at him for a moment. And then when I tried to turn and sneak away, the noise snapped Louie out of it. And all of a sudden, there was that professional grin again, mouth wide open. He whipped out his handkerchief, mopped his brow, and said, hey, Pops. Look like you cats trying to starve old Louis to death. Yeah. <laughs> I put on my face and grinned right back. But it wasn't funny. Not anymore. What I saw in that look shook me. It was my father, my uncle, myself, down through the generations doing exactly what Louis had to do for the same reason, to survive. I never laughed at Louis after that. For beneath that gravel voice and that shuffle, under all that mouth with more teeth than a piano had keys, it was a horn that could kill a man. That horn was where Louis had kept his manhood hid all those years. Enough for him, enough for all of us. Louis, man, I didn't have sense enough to tell you this when I was a kid. I guess I didn't even know it myself. But I love you. And I'm not the only one. Ah, would it end? He ain't got a friend. That was Ossie Davis talking about Louis Armstrong. I played that as a 
way to expose a, a, a subject that I've been grappling with for a while now. The masks we wear. Uh, this holiday season Life is hard. It's also glorious and amazing and sweet and hilarious and lonely and dark, ambiguous, and sometimes terrifying. So choose kindness. We're all struggling, whether at the top or the bottom of the food chain, we are all struggling. So choose kindness. If you're at the top of the food chain, listen, <laughs> this holiday season, we're in a recession, experiencing inflation, and people need help. So be of service and help. Choose kindness. You never know, but, but the, the ripple effects of your actions can save lives. Rest in peace, Twitch. Rest in peace to all those who just couldn't stand the rain. We'll be back next time with another wonderful guest. Until then, much love, one love, tap love, peace.